Thank you, John and Richard. Uh, yeah, we're back in Revelation uh, this week, and we're in a sub-series uh, of a greater series called Faithful to the End. Um, but we're part of a sub-series right now in the seven churches of Revelation, and this is the first of those seven churches. Amazingly, all of these seven churches uh, no longer remain uh, churches. And so it's a sobering reality for us as we read these letters from the resurrected Christ through the Apostle John to these churches uh, that we would take them seriously. Uh, what's even more alarming, I guess, in reading this particular letter is this is the church at Ephesus, which of the seven churches we know much more about than we know uh, of the other churches. Ephesus, if you're familiar, uh, Paul wrote a well-known, famous letter to the Ephesians, which is probably the greatest theological treatise in the Bible on New Testament theology, aside from Romans. Um, and so they received this letter, which is filled with brilliant explanation of doctrine just 30 or 40 years previous to John writing them this letter. And so we'll get more into that in just a minute, the, the history of Ephesus but it's a sobering reality for us. Um, I want you to know that uh, we have an artist in our church. His name is Jamie Jones, and he is painting digitally uh, paintings of our sermon series now. And so that's what you see out in the lobby, um, and he's going to keep on doing that, which is an incredible uh, gift to our church for him to be doing that. But his most recent digital art for us is a, is a, is a escape of um, the church at Laodicea and what it looks like now, the ruins of Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches mentioned. But that church, th those ruins could represent any of these churches, uh, including the church in Ephesus. I was just in Scotland, as I mentioned earlier, and had an unbelievably great time um, with our partners there in Haddington, which is a suburb right outside of Edinburgh. The church is doing really, really well. I hope to do a vision moment soon where I can explain more about what's going on there. But I couldn't be more excited about what God is doing in that church. Um, they have about 140 people who are regularly attending, which in Scotland is like a mega church. Um, and they're only about five years old. And they're just really seeing people come into this church uh, in Haddington. Haddington is a, a very similar type of community to Cary um, in terms of really being a desirable place to live, people buying their forever home, having good jobs. It's different in that it's very... Uh, it's, it's a parish. I mean, everyone lives in this little town. Um, not many people commute in, and, and carries like 40 minutes wide, depending on how you're driving it. But So there are some dissimilarities. But just so encouraged to be with them. And what's amazing about it is to see the comparison of what's happening in this church, which is part of the Free Church of Scotland, to, and you compare that with what's happening in the Church of Scotland. Um, an analogy here would be something like what's happening in the PCUSA versus what is happening in the PCA broadly. What's happening in the Church of Scotland, which is the denomination, I'll remind you, that John Knox himself, who's the founder of Presbyterianism, back in the 1500s started uh, through blood, sweat, and tears, much martyrdom, many people giving up their lives for the gospel. The Church of Scotland is predicted to no longer exist, probably, by the Church of Scotland, this is their own internal work, by 2035 that they will no longer, they probably no longer exist because of financial reasons. They may have a few people over the age of 80 or so that are still going there, but there's, there's no movement in the youth 
Uh, there's no church planning happening. Um, it, is, it is a very stark scene. I, I was able to tour St. Giles Cathedral, which is where John Knox preached and ministered. And um, now there's still a church meeting there, but essentially it's like a museum, and soon it will be a museum uh, to the faith. And yet, in the free church of Scotland, what you find is you find growth, you find the gospel, you find people coming to Christ, you find church planting, you find children coming to Christ. And, and I think, you know, they, they will openly just immediately start talking about it. They're so proud of what God is doing. And if you ask them what's the difference, is they, they just say simply, we preach the gospel. They don't. We preach the gospel according to the scriptures, and the Church of Scotland has left all of that behind many years ago, and they have over-contextualized, or whatever you want to call it, they basically lost their faith to the culture. They've just bought into everything that the culture has been selling, and there's nothing different between the Church of Scotland and the culture, and so why would you go to a church? What's the point? But in the Free Church of Scotland, they preach the gospel, and they live it out, and they talk about how the gospel applies in life. And so the church is growing. Back to our passage here. The church in Ephesus was planted by Paul. He stayed there for three years. He preached the gospel day in and day out. He left that church to Timothy, his protege in the faith. Timothy was the pastor there. And around 62 AD-ish is when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And now this letter from Jesus through John is written to the church, same church, in the 90 to 100 period, about 30 years later, one generation later, this, church, this letter is being written to the church. What can we learn from this? How can we avoid what happened in Ephesus, what's happening in Edinburgh, and we are seeing some regeneration of faith by God's grace? What's happened in Turkey? Maybe we're seeing some people... Uh, coming to Christ in Turkey, but the church is no longer, that's, that's Asia Minor, modern day, where Ephesus was. Um, how can we avoid that slide? That is what ver- that's what Jesus is very concerned about for us, and that's why Jesus wrote these, se- these seven letters to the seven churches. All right, so through the spirit of Jesus, we received this letter that was written to the Ephesians. So there are three important aspects of Christian devotion that Jesus is emphasizing to the church here. Two areas of devotion they are commended for, and one they are confronted about. Okay, so we'll get into that. The first area of devotion that the church is commended for is they're they're commended by Jesus for being devoted to teaching true, enduring theology. True, enduring theology, and that's that's extremely important. Jesus is is grateful. He's, He's applauding them for their work. It's important for us to understand the cultural context of what is happening in Ephesus and why that was so hard and why Jesus was so excited that they were doing that. There are some challenges that are happening as they seek to be a church in Ephesus at the time. First, the first challenge was the size and diversity of Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the largest cities in the world at the time, probably fourth or fifth. All of the major four roads in Asia Minor converged in Ephesus. It was also a coastal town, and so people were coming in from the sea and from the land, from the town, from the villages, and you had this ethnic, this socioeconomic, cultural mix that is happening in Ephesus, which made it a bit more challenging. There's a lot of potential, 
for the gospel, a little bit more challenging to apply it. The second thing that's going on in Ephesus that we need to know about is that there was spiritual warfare and sin happening in Ephesus. So in chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul gives us the longest treatise on how to engage in spiritual warfare of any of the other letters that he writes, and that's because there was a lot of sin and spiritual warfare happening in Ephesus. It was known for various forms of paganism, some sophisticated forms of paganism, and some sleazy forms of paganism, all right? On the sophisticated side, you had people teaching about uh, Gnosticism and spiritual enlightenment, and there was this temple to Artemis that existed there, which had some weird theology that people were believing, and so that was one thing that was out there. But you also had the sleazy going on. You had sexual sin that was rampant in Ephesus. There's a sign that still stands today on the streets by the ancient dock there that directed sailors directly from their ships to the brothels. That's one that you can still go to Ephesus and see there today. In this temple of Artemis, which taught some form of theology of its own, there was also an interwoven sexual sin that was happening where where prostitution was happening in the temple itself. And so in the midst of this cultural mix, you have the church. And so it was difficult to hold on to Christian doctrine and teach it in a way that they could be seeing people understand who Christ is, come to Christ, and live this out in the culture. How did Paul face the cultural challenges of Ephesus? Well, it tells us he stayed there for three years. He taught daily in public and in private. He went every day, it says in uh, Acts 19, to the hall of Tyrannus to teach the word. And after he left, he put his best man on the job, Timothy. And Timothy, it says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, Paul writes him and tells him, keep watch over your doctrine closely. If you do it, you will save yourself and your hearers. So Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, you got to hold on to doctrine. Don't give up on that. And so 30 or 40 years later, it's to this same church that John is writing his letter. So how does John commend them specifically for their continued devotion to sound doctrine in Revelation 2? Well, first of all, he commends them. He says they're not just teaching true doctrine, but they're also confronting false doctrine. So it's one thing to teach the truth. It's another thing that when heresies arise, and there was a particular heresy where people were coming about and saying that that they were apostles, but they're not, which means that they had some kind of new revelation about God that was more new than the apostles, which is still happening today. People are still trying to add to the word, and, and he says, good job on not just holding on to the truth, but calling out lies, saying that's wrong, that's false. And he says, you need to keep on doing that. He also commends them for not, not being able to stand those who do evil, and they're rooting out evil in church. So they're not just doing good, which is important, but they're opposing evil. Now, what is evil uh, in this context? He's not talking about sins in the church that are being repented of. That's always, I mean, sin's always present in the church, and we always have to be repenting of sin. He's talking about sin in the church that's not being repented of, and is being perpetuated, and it's becoming a part of the church culture and life. And he's saying, great job, church, on not allowing sin to gain hold to where it becomes evil that is then impacting the church at large. So what do we take away here from this first 
commendation from, from Jesus. First of all, we just need to understand that the resurrected Christ greatly values when we teach about him according to the word of God. Every time a sermon is preached, every time you share Christ, every time you talk to your kids about him and you, you talk about him according to what is true, Jesus says, thank you. Thank you for telling people about me what's true. And when anyone says something about me or about my word that's not true, if you can, you can correct that, that's what I want you to do. We need to remember that. He also says, thank you for not letting evil take hold in my church that I died for. Thank you. Don't allow that to happen. Don't just do good. Push back evil. Keep evil out of the church. You know, the Ephesians faced a challenge in, in Edinburgh. They faced a challenge. And here in our day, in America, we face a challenge in this area. As we seek to hold on to the gospel in an age where the, our culture is, is just mixed up in all kinds of different controversies. How do we do that? Well, I think there's, there's two ditches that we can fall into on either side of the road as we, as we seek to, to live according to the gospel of grace. The first ditch that we can fall into, I would call the uh, spirituality of the church. Um, what, what I mean by that is there, there are certain pastors or preachers or leaders who, if you listen to them speak, they speak the truth, but you could also listen to their sermon in the year 2050 or 22100, whatever we're going to call that, uh, and it would, it would be the same. There, there would be nothing about their message that is actually seeking to apply the gospel in the age that we live in. They would say that, you know, you can teach truth, but we're not going to get involved with the messiness and the brokenness of this world. Or they might be super selective about how they do that, and it might fall out along political lines. And so we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to opt for a spirituality of the church where you're removing Christ from the culture that is going on around, okay? The other way of falling into the ditch uh, would be what I would call a new righteousness around social justice issues. Okay, and new righteousness, what I mean by that is that we're going to go the other way. We're going to so get involved in the issues of our times. We're going to so seek to apply the gospel in the issues of our times, usually in one particular issue of our times. It could be on the right or it could be on the left. But if you don't apply it like I do, if you don't do it like I do, if you don't post like I do, if you don't protest like I do, you don't preach like I do, then not only am I concerned about your faith, I kind of wonder if you understand the gospel at all. And what that's called is a new righteousness. There's no new righteousness. We, we have Christ and we seek to apply him, apply his values, what he cares about in the moment of our time. What we seek to do here at our church is we would call it a third way where, yes, we're holding on to the gospel, we're holding on to the scriptures, and it's, it's very hard, and we don't do it perfectly, but we want to talk about, like Richard's prayer is a great example, how does the gospel of love, love from God for us, that he died to give for us, apply in the days that we live in right now? And we need your help. We need to do that together. We're not, I'm not perfect. It's, it's nearly impossible, but by God's grace, we can continue on without falling in either ditch. I 
there's another church in Scotland that was just absolutely thriving for, for, for centuries and, and also now has basically no one in it, and it's the Brethren Church. The Brethren Church, back until like the mid-20th century, was thriving, but now there's literally no Brethren Church. Now, why? I was talking with someone who was there, who grew, two people that grew up in the Brethren Church. In, in the Brethren Church, they have done nothing. It's like you're going back to the 1700s, and they've done nothing to, to bring uh, the application of the gospel into this cultural moment. So their kids wonder, do I need to be two or 300 years old to be a Christian? What does Jesus have to do with my life now? And, and there's no one in the church there now in the Brethren Church. And so we have to hold on to Christ, and we have to engage culture. If you don't engage culture and seek to live it out in this culture, what you're doing then is you're, you're just pegging the gospel to a culture from like 100 or 200 or 300 years ago. There's no such thing as an unenculturated gospel. You, we all are human beings. We live in a time period. The Ephesians needed to live it out in their day, and we have to live it out in our day today. Well, Jesus commends them for their faith, and that's something that we can hope for for ourselves as well. The second area that Jesus says you need to be devoted to, if you're devoted to me, is to loving God and loving one another. And I didn't realize Richard was going to pray through 1 Corinthians 13, but that was an excellent, um, basically a, a preamble for this section. So even though the Ephesians would receive an A in their devotion to doctrine, they would receive a D, maybe an F, in their, loving, in their love for God and love for each other. Their heads were full of brilliant ideas, and their hearts and their hands were weak. And Jesus says, that's a problem. That's a big problem. He says, it's such a big problem that if you don't correct it, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Now, what does that mean? In the first part there, Jesus says, I'm the one, I hold the seven stars in my hand, and I walk among the seven golden lampstands. Those stars represent the seven churches that he's writing to. Jesus is saying, I hold the, the church in my hands. I hold the church. And the lampstand is the way that the church shines the light of the gospel around them. And Jesus is saying, if you, if you don't correct this, then I'm going to come and I'm, I'm going to remove you as a church who speaks for me. Because I love and if you can't do that, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, then, then you're missing the whole point. And so before I go back to John's words here, and, um, and I unpack John's words here in verses 4 through 5, I want to unpack for you a little bit what Paul, what Paul said to the Ephesians in his letter. Because what they received from John should not have been a surprise to them at all. It's easy for us to read the book of Ephesians if you're familiar with it. And to treat it like a, a systematic theology textbook. It's easy to read it and be like, wow, like look at all the brilliant doctrines that are articulated here. When actually the theme of Ephesians, the heartbeat of Ephesians, is the love of God. Throughout Ephesians, as, as Paul is unpacking this doctrine, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And I'll, I'm just going to do a brief walkthrough to show you how unsurprising this news is should have been from Jesus, Okay. So in, in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, 
Paul says, in love you were predestined and chosen. And so as he is like unpacking all of these brilliant doctrines of grace, he's saying at the heart of everything that God did is loving you. And then if you go to Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, he said, but God, he demonstrated his love for us. And, and what, he, what he did in that is he says, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. So when you get into the, the gospel of grace, why did God do it? Why did he generate this grace for us? He did it because he loves us, because of the great love with which he loved us. So if you can't understand the doctrines of grace, you can't hold to the doctrines of grace without understanding the love of God for sinners. And then you go to chapter 3, and his famous prayer for the Ephesian church, what does Paul pray for them? He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with the fullness of God. His one prayer for them out of all of this is not, man, I hope you open really amazing seminaries. I hope that your systematic theology textbooks as a result of my letter are unparalleled. I just, he says, I want you to love each other. I want you to love God and love each other. And then he gets into chapter 4, which is where he transitions to the application of the gospel. And he says what? Very beginning of that application section, he says what in verse 1 of chapter 4? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And he goes in to articulate the doctrine of the body of Christ. And he's saying the only way this works is if you love each other. You know, you can take all the spiritual gifts tests you want. You can go through all the assessments you want online. You can listen to all the podcasts ad nauseum. But if you don't love each other, you're not going to be a body. And then at the very end, if they hadn't gotten his point already, the very last sentence, the way he concludes the letter of Ephesians, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. He's saying, that's what I'm after for you. Yeah, I want you to try to understand all these amazing things about Jesus and what he's done. But at the end of the day, it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. And so when the Ephesian church gets this letter from Jesus, they should have been utterly unsurprised about what Jesus cares about. When, he gets, when they get to verse 4 and 5, these sentences when Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus is saying, man, back in Acts 19 and 20, you were really on the right track. And then when you received that letter of the Ephesians back in AD 62, man, I saw some really good things happening. But I just want you to know right now, I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. In the last 30 years, something's happened. What's happened? What's happened is you're treating me like a doctrine and not like the love of your life. What's happened is you're treating me like a cause, not like the love of your life. Jesus is saying, I'm not a doctrine. I'm not a cause. I'm God. I'm the God who died for you. I love you. And the base of it all is that you would love 
me and love each other. So he says, repent and do the works you did at first. What is love? Well, we just read about it uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 through Richard's prayer. But love is at least three things in trying to understand it. Love is allegiance, love is affection, and love is action. Love is allegiance, affection, and action. Allegiance. They were doing well there. There was one God that they were supposed to love, and they were teaching everyone that that was true. Allegiance. Good job. You got, it, you got your head screwed on right about who to be, who to be loving. Affection. What is affection? Affection is that soul-level, heart-level relationship, that, that, that care that you have, the way that you are impacted by the person that you love. Uh, it's hard to, hard to describe, but it impacts your emotions, kind of the core of your being, saying your affections are messed up, your heart is, is far away. And then he says your actions, your actions also, he says repent and do the works you did at first. There is an action required from love. There is a way to respond to love that Jesus says you're getting it, you're getting it mi mixed up. There's a tangible or a hand side of love. And he says your hands are weak. So the Ephesians are strong in allegiance but weak in affection and action. And Jesus says knowing who you love isn't enough. He says I want your heart and I want your hands as well. Olivia and I were hiking one of our favorite trails to hike in North Carolina up off the Blue Ridge Parkway is called Boone Fork Trail. If you haven't ever hiked that trail, it's, it's a great trail. Uh, it's moderate in difficulty. It's not easy, but it's moderate. It's not that hard, but it's worth doing. And uh, I've, I've probably hiked that trail 25 times. Um, one day we were hiking that trail, and we came upon a tree that had fallen into the, the river at the, at the bottom of the, of the trail, and um, the tree, it, it just really struck me because most trees that are in rivers are not beautiful because they're dead. But this tree was beautiful. This tree still had leaves on it. It was fall. It still had the colors on it. And the tree had just fallen. Literally, it must have just happened because it looked alive. But in fact, it wasn't. It was dead. And so I walked over to the tree. It just blew me away. I was like, what? This is... You only see trees like this upright, typically, and I looked over, I went and looked at the trunk of the tree on the inside, and it was rotted out from the inside. The tree, for years, had been growing in the right direction, pointed in the right way. It knew where to be pointed, but years ago, it had become infested with something that was eating it out from the inside, and it had lost its, lost its fervor, lost its life, and it was laying there, looking beautiful, but dead in the river. And Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church, I get, I get worried at this point about, about where you're going. You need to repent, he says. What, is, what does he say? He says, return to your first love and do the work you did at first. Now, we're not exactly told what that means. Um, and sometimes scripture does that, and when it does that, that's fine. Um, but it leaves us some room to fill in the blanks and the gap of scripture not telling us exactly what that means. So what could that mean? Uh, for them. Well, think about when you were first a Christian, if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then 
hope you'll become one soon. Um, but if you if you when you when you if you've been walking with Christ for a long time and you think back upon on those early years, think about what it was like for you to read God's word. And as you read God's word and you or you heard about the gospel of Christ and the way that He loved you and you read about that, think about how it, it touched you, how He loved you, of all people, He loved you. But over time, you've become more, when you read the Word, you're more concerned about how to refute other people's errors. What would I do if I were to teach on this passage? You're more concerned about other people loving God, maybe than you, yourself, loving God. And Jesus says, you need to go back to what it was like before. You need to remember the heart of of the gospel, which is my relationship with you and how much I love you. Or think about what it was like for you to pray when you were first a Christian, now, that if, once you're a Christian for a while, you think about praying for all the things that are out there and um, maybe praying for other people in the way that they'll change, but you might not pray very much about yourself and, and how much you need to repent and where things have gotten messed up and broken in your own life. And, and Jesus says you need to recover that, that prayer life where you're just talking to me about what's going on in your heart as a friend to a friend. Or think about what it was like for you when you were first a Christian and you were singing in church. I think sometimes now we sing out of discipline. Uh, we sing and we think about, conf- this is the right theology that I'm singing. And this is a good thing to do to come to church on Sundays. I hope my kids sing, learn these songs. These songs are important for the kids. Oh, that's fine. But the reality is when you're singing in church, it's really supposed to be about you worshiping God from your heart. When's the last time you sang from your heart to God and and felt like these are the words that are true and I believe they're true for me. Thank God for the gospel. And Jesus is saying you just need to recover that. Don't be so concerned about, uh, you know, the tree is, it's growing in the right direction. You've got the doctrine, but make sure it's matched with the heart. Make sure it's matched, that theology is matched with grace on the inside. They needed to repent and do the things they did at first, and it will take some, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of course. It is, the Greek word is metanoia. It means you're going in one direction, and you realize that that's not the right direction, and you move in a different direction, and Jesus is saying that in order to love again, you're going to have to move in a different direction than you're moving in right now, which means that we need to, as we sing holy, 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 as we stand before a holy God, and as we we stand before a resurrected Christ who wrote this letter. We need to take it seriously that this is really actually what Jesus cares about. It's really actually what Jesus cares about, that we would love him and love each other. And if we're not, then we need to repent and we need to go to him in prayer, ask him to change us. So Paul confronts them about this area of love. He says it's serious. And then the third area, it's going to be super brief because this area comes up again in two weeks in another letter. Um, But they are also commended for another thing, which is their opposition to the Nicolaitans. Who were they? The third point is they were devoted to opposing anyone who would use grace to encourage sin. They were commended for opposing anyone who would use grace to encourage sin. Sin. There was this group called the Nicolaitans. Again, they come up in a couple of weeks. I'll unpack that more. But it's this 
heresy that because Jesus has died for you on the cross and your sins are forgiven and that, that can never be taken from you because God's grace is secure for you, that you can essentially, on the basis of that grace, go out and sin all you want. Another, the theological big word for this is licentiousness. Uh, that, that basically grace from God gives us a license to sin. Paul addresses this in Romans 6, and he says, should we uh, keep on sinning or encourage sin that grace may increase? And he says, meganoita, or by no means, or in current English, are you, are you crazy? Are you, are you an idiot? <laughs> I mean, it's very serious. I mean, it's like, no. Um, absolutely not. That's not, what, that's not what the gospel is about. But I think the confusion for us, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer does a great job of pointing this out in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is that we've been taught so much about grace being free, which it is. It is a free gift from God. But it is not cheap. It's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. The reason why it's free is because someone else already paid the price. Jesus already paid the great high price for your sin. He paid this extraordinary extremely expensive price of his own life so that it could be free for you. But because it's free for us, sometimes we think it's also cheap. Therefore, because it's cheap, we can do whatever we want, which is not Christianity. It's not true to the faith. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, has knowing that we have grace from God decreased my hatred for sin? Has knowing that God loves me and forgives me, has it made me go easier on those areas of sin in my life that I know are wrong? And I rationalize it and I say, it's, you know, I'm forgiven, it's, it's okay. And Paul says, may it never be. And John says, that's not, that's not the truth. And the resurrected Christ, more importantly, says, thank you for hating that kind of theology. Thank you for hating that kind of practice. Don't live that way. So if you have something in your life that you're, you're just kind of nursing because you're just like, well, I know I'm forgiven, that's the, wrong, that's the wrong perspective. Consider what it looks like to root that out of your life because Christ died and paid an extreme price so that you could have that grace that you have in him. But surely the big takeaway today from this letter to the Ephesians, I'm sorry, yeah, from, from John and from Paul, um, is this. It's that love for God is at the middle and the heartbeat of Christianity. It is the center of, of what we believe. And so if, if you've got the right doctrine, but you don't have love, then you're nothing. If you've got Jesus as a cause, but not Jesus as the lover of your life, the lover of your soul, then you've gotten off track. Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not just the doctrine. I'm your... I'm your Lord, I'm your King, I'm the one who loves you. And I've demonstrated that love for you on the cross. I've, I've bled out and died, and I've been raised from the dead to tell you, he says in the letter, I'm telling you that love for me matters, and love for other people matters. That love that I showed to the world, I showed to you, you are also called, even though you're not going to do it as perfectly and absolutely not as I have, the call of the gospel is to follow Christ in that love, in that love in practical ways. The, the takeaway for us here today is, how is your love for Christ? How is your tree, or if you think about that tree at Boone Fork Trail, 
lying there in the river, I, I don't think you're there. Um, but you might have something going on in your heart that's like a pestilence that's keeping you from, from really experiencing that life. So I encourage you to repent. I encourage you to go to Christ and say, Lord, I want it to be like it was before. Teach me to love you. Teach me again how to have you in that relationship in the center of my life. And teach me how to, to love others. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, being away for three, being away for 12 days, and, and I went to three countries, and it was really amazing. I can tell you about it. Um, but coming back and, and feeling the three years of all that we've been through in America and as a church and feeling the, the brokenness um, and the longing for God to heal and bring restoration and wholeness, it was much more palpable. I think we get used to living with all of the brokenness around us, a lot of relational brokenness even. Um, and yet the Lord is calling us and he's saying, I'm calling you to love. I'm calling you to love me first. And for me, let me show you how to love others as you follow me in that. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the way that you, um, you love us and you demonstrate your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we, we did not deserve your love and yet you gave it to us. And so, Lord, you have put love at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of everything that we are and what we believe and who we're called to be. And fundamentally, it's just what we need. And so I pray, God, that for each and every one of us, that you would uh, renew our spirits or help us to know what it looks like to follow you in this area of our lives. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.